0: It's not going to be that good. <laughs> As a kid, I, we moved, my family moved from where I was born in New York City to Indiana, and it was quite a culture shock. I've talked about that a little bit around here, but, um, but I was looking for a group of friends, somebody, you know, just looking for other kids my age to hang out with, and there was this one group that I kind of got in with. And uh, Keith and Joey and Jeff formed this little nucleus, and they were friendly to me, and I was glad to have some friends, and so I kind of became part of this group. And over time, I I, I started to, you know, do, the things, do things with them, and I found out over time that it was pretty consistent. There were a couple things that they did. One was they listened to John Denver music all the time. And the other thing they did was they went fishing, and they would... They said, "Oh, fishing is so much fun. Fishing is great." And so I got a pole and I got a tackle box. And I—I I mean, I was from Brooklyn. I had no idea what this stuff was, but oh, it's so good! And, and you know, we went and we would go down and they said and said and I—I I, when I checked these guys and say, "So what do you do today?" And they'd say, "Oh, we're going, we're going down fishing by the creek for an hour," which I didn't even know was English until later when I kind of discerned the dialect. Um, and and so I would go in and I would fish. And and after I don't know how long, I was standing by, you know, this cr- creek, fishing, and something hit me. I stand, uh, there, there, one's over there, one's over there, one's down there, and we're fishing, and I sat there and I thought, I'm not having any fun. <laughs> this is stupid. I... Stephen Wright, the the comedian, once said, there's a fine line between fishing and standing by the bank looking like an idiot. And that's kind of what it felt like to me. And finally, I just had to admit, I said, I don't like doing this. I don't want to do this. And these guys looked at me like I was from Mars and said, if you're part of our group, you got to fish. And over time, I no longer became part of that group. It was... They had never told me that when I jumped in. They never told me that it was a requirement to be their friend. But over time, I realized this was kind of a non-negotiable. I had to be a fisher dude in order to hang with those guys. Now, this might sound weird to you, but a whole lot of people feel like they got a fish to come hang out in church, the equivalent of that. And, and, you know, it's not uncommon that just in a whole lot of groups, there's just a whole – there's sets of non-negotiables to prove that you're legit, that you belong. They, we have the phrase for it. We, we, we say they are members in good standing, right? You've heard that. Whether it's a club you're in or whether it's, you know, any organization, you're a member in good standing. What that means is they've got bylaws, they've got requirements, they've got things that if you're going to be in that, you've got to live up to that standard. You've got to participate in those activities, We, we heard this morning that the church is a family, and in a whole lot of places, and this is not, this is not new to our generation, it's not new, it, it has been in every generation since Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, it has been true of, the, of g- gatherings of churches too that it kind of becomes a club, it kind of becomes this a special group, and, and there are members in good standing, there are, there are means by which we show that you're legit, that you really belong, that you really mean it, that you're really in here. Now, in this, this was a circular letter that got sent to uh, various churches in, in this province or this region called Galatia. And I want to invite you to take a look. And if you got access to a Bible, hopefully you brought one or access to one. Um, and I'm just going to take one section. Obviously, we can't do everything today. But just to kind of get the lay of the land from this. And so if you got it, take a look in the book of Galatians to chapter 5. That's where I'm going to land and then show you some other stuff, too. And uh, as you heard in the video. There was this. This thing was written in response to something that became fairly common in the in the early New Testament, and Paul the apostle had to deal with it in a lot of settings. And it had to do with this Jewish Gentile distinction because it was a unique, distinct club to be God followers in the kingdom of Israel. And then Jesus comes and says, "Hey, guess everyone, everybody, everybody, come on in." He's asking all the Gentiles to come in, and the Jews go, "Whoa, whoa, who are these outsiders?" They hardly treated him as human for centuries. They were dirty. You, you talked to them. You were unclean. It was not a good thing. And now they're, he's saying, nope, the doors are open. Everybody's supposed to come in. They go, well, okay. If we have to let them in, we'll let them in. But, boy, they better shape up. I mean, they better show that they belong here. They better, if they want to be a member in good standing, then they've got to kind of do the things that have always been required. And circumcision, which is just really painful and really personal, <laughs> and private was presented as the step to say all right you mean it line up line up gentlemen here we go we're gonna do this which if can you imagine what that'd be like like you want me to what I just came here for the snacks (laughs) look this is how it's always been if we're going to let them in, they got to comply with our longstanding distinctions. And it, if they want to be one of us, but it wasn't just a made-up thing. They said, "Look, we got it in writing. It's in the Bible. It's I mean, this came from God. We have good reason to say that this is true." So Paul hears about this and and this writing and and Galatians and Romans get there's a whole lot of overlap between the two. It becomes kind of a test case. This 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 situation for a huge component of God's message that Paul is not going to let go, and, and you and I need to pay attention to it. Because he's going to say, there is something that's so important and so central to the message of Jesus, what he wants every human being to hear, that, it, that this, will get, this is going to detract from it. So it's not just, a, oh, kind of figure it out. He's going he's to come hard after it. So listen to Galatians 5, first five verses to start. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then, And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. I mean, that's strong. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You're trying to be justified by law. You you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace but by faith we eagerly await through the spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now let's just stop there for a minute. And there's this radical revelation that Paul is gonna use this as a template to kind of show us. And he says central to this thing is that there is this absolute freedom that's given to human beings. Absolute freedom. And it is the epicenter of, of the good news that's why it's good news it is absolute freedom there's this phrase that gets used in trade in uh, in global trade they, they call it most favored nation status if you qualify as most favored nation it means you are given all the rights doesn't matter if you've got other problems or how we view you or if we d- disagree with your I- ideology but you are we give you the exact same deal we give to other nations when we trade so a lot of people are jockeying for, a lot of nations jockey for most favored nation status. What God says, what Paul has delivered as a message is, there's a central part of what Jesus came to give people. It's what makes it so good. And that is his that full, complete inclusion. All rights and privileges. Full, complete acceptance of you to almighty God. Imagine that. Complete acceptance Com- and completely separated, entirely separated from your performance, from your history, from your adherence to any standards, from any conditions, from any compliance. Gra- it's called grace. This rich, incredible thing. It is. An, we sing amazing. It is amazing, and it is because grace is really this free, unprovoked granting of favored status to those who do not deserve it with the giver of the grace absorbing any cost necessary for its provision. And when that grace is given, that means it opens a door and it means complete freedom. It is freedom, he says, that Christ gave you. And the reason he gave it to you, do you see what it says in verse one? Is so you could be free. That's it. It's for freedom. It's freedom from punishment, which a lot of us understand. Okay, it's the hell thing, which is good. I've got freedom from that punishment, but it's more than that. It's freedom from enslavement in my present life, from the compulsion that I have to sin. I mean, in Romans, here, take a look at this. We know that our old self was crucified. This is Romans 6, several verses there. Was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to it. We're set free from it. So he says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from your controlled righteousness. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And the benefit you reap leads to a holiness, and the result is eternal life. It's freedom, not just from punishment, from f- the compulsion that we carry around. By the way, if you don't know Jesus yet, you got to know. You'll never get free from being you're, uh, having to sin. You will. And even though we're bound in sin to a degree, we don't have to sin because there's a freedom God gives us in there. A whole lot more we can talk about that, but there's another freedom. And it's the freedom from any kind of compulsion or requirement to stay in good standing. In Colossians 2, he's gonna say this. Colossians will come in a week or two or three. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He canceled the written code with its regulations. And therefore, he says, look, as a result of that, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. There's a lot of laws in the Old Testament talked about that. With regard to religious fe- festivals, like where you're supposed to do and what you're, when you, how often you're supposed to show up, or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day, these are the shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And so, since you died with Christ, he took your, he took your death to the basic principles of this world, he asked this question. Why, as though you still belong to it, would you submit to its rules? The rules like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Grace. If we, it's always been said, and I absolutely believe this. If we really understand grace, if we really teach grace, it it is reckless. It feels irresponsible. It raises a whole lot of yeah buts. Did you have any just go through your minds, right? Oh well, well, what it, it feels. And so, every time grace is truly preached, when Jesus did it, if any churches do it now, if if people, you'll get accused of things. You'll get accused of being irresponsible, of of, of just being, of just making it too easy. You you, it, it's it's scandalous, but Jesus said this. Oh, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. That phrase means utterly, completely. Free, and when grace has been taught from the time of Paul to the time of now, every time it happens this this thing ha- occurs consistently it happens that there are attempts made to try to qualify it, try to put conditions about it to create well let 's be reasonable about that let 's not go too far with this thing uh, let, you know there are reasonable expectations, and it happened then. To these group of people, circumcision was presented to say, "Look, it's in the law. It's what we've always done. It's a reasonable expectation. Why would you not want to do what God had said we should do in order to be a member in good standing here? It's always been a marker. It was a real physical marker of what, of what it meant to be submitted to God and to be serious about Him and to be distinct. It has happened, there have been things that are parallel to that all through the centuries. There's some that have happened in my lifetime. Some of you, I, I, when I first came to know Jesus, I was in very conservative circles. Very, very um, rules-oriented, very straight and very strict things. And some of these were true even in when, when I first came to know Jesus. Some of them still exist, but they've, historically, you do church history studies, and you'll see things that say, if you are a good Christian, if you are a serious Christian, if you're really committed to Christ, then there are certain things that you just won't do, and there are certain things that you must do. And uh, there, there have been times where going to the theater was considered absolutely forbidden for followers of Jesus. I went to a school that required that we not play any kind of cards with regular face cards. We could play Uno, but we couldn't play with the face cards because they had a history, and we stayed away from that, and there was a rule against that. There were... For years, it was lodges in America. You couldn't have be a member of a lodge because they required membership to take you and do certain things. That, that, were, that And then we had blue laws and Sabbath keeping, and there were a whole lot of us grew up in circumstances where we said, you don't dare do anything on Sundays. You don't go play with your friends. You don't go to the movies. Oh, that was another one. <laughs> you never go to the movies. We had alternatives to dances and proms where, when I, in my Youth group growing up. And again, so am I going to step on your toes a little bit? Here we go. You're going to get closer and closer. Because, you know, stuff happens at those places. And you can't let that stuff happen to us. Oh, forget drums in church. <laughs> I mean, we had a sinner. I mean, that, that was just sin, just blatant sin going on right over here. Sorry. <laughs> and you dressed up and you dressed in certain ways and you smelled a certain way and you talked a certain way and you sang certain kinds of songs. And you didn't do that other stuff because when you're serious there are things that are just natural requirements some of you may even have a family member who got the plum job that's considered the plum job to work at disney parks it is to be a disney princess you can get a lot of other characters. You can put the mouse hat on, and that's all right. But you know, if you really want the plum job, it's a, you get to be a Disney princess. But in order to be a d- Disney princess, if you're given that job, here are the things, in order to stay in good standing with that, here are the things that are required from you. You must be between 5'4 and 5'7. You cannot ever get beyond a size 10 in your dress size. You have to know how to dance. You have to know the entirety and be able to quote the entirety of the movie script that your particular character is based on. You can never answer a question when you're interacting with, uh, with, in public, you can never answer a question with the words, I don't know. You always have to have an answer. You have to be between 18 and 23 years of age to start, and you can't be older than 27 to continue, with rare exception. You have to be able to co- apply your own makeup to match the character. You have to mimic the character's mannerisms and voice inflection, as well as a standard signature for that particular princess, you must never point with one finger. Ever, you'll be fired. You're never allowed to discuss what, your chari- what, char- uh, what character you're portraying outside the park. You can't post it on social media. You can't tell people what character you are when you're with your family. You can't refer to anything outside the Disney realm when you're in character. And there's no talking about what you did after work. You have to be able to handle the extreme heat without, and you must smile the entire time you're in character, the entire time. Every moment when you're upset, you must never be sad or upset. You do any of those things, you don't comply with any of those things, and you have shown you're not serious to be in that group, to be in that club. Now, we kind of laugh at that kind of stuff, but they said, well, you know, it's a privilege to be in that. You need to show you're serious. But you know, followers of God have done the same thing. Because you've heard this phrase, and I've heard this phrase, mature Christians don't, and you can fill in the blank. True Christians do this. And so when Paul encounters that that's going on in in these churches in Galatia, he's going to respond, and you get ready for this. It is an extreme response. I mean, he is loaded for bear on this. And he basically responds and says, you give no quarter to that mentality. Again, take a look at uh, from the middle of verse 1. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Again, did you hear the, 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 did you hear the passion in this? Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you. I mean, it is strong. He is standing on a soapbox and says... If you let this happen, if you accommodate this requirement of a circumcision, Christ will be of no value to you. He goes on to say that if a person does that, they've, they've, they've relinquished something. Now, now, if you look down at verse 7, he appeals to them. You see his tender side. He, he says, you were riding a good race. Who cut in on you, kept you from obeying the truth, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. See what he's implying there? Anybody who's teaching you something other than this, he, and he quotes a, another part of scripture: "A little yeast, uh, scripture. A little yeast works through the enti- the whole batch of dough." He said, "You grant that, and you're gonna. It'll haul cave in on you about what the good news is." I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who's throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. I mean, that's strong words, but if you think that's strong, not strong enough, flip back to Galatians 1. And look at verse 6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly, this is the context, he's talking about this requirement. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace, there's that word again, of Christ, and are turning to, and look at the phrase, it's a different gospel. It's not really no gospel, no good news at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, I mean, it, he doesn't get much stronger than this in, his, in, his, in what he writes, should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. Wow. It is so important, he says, that you understand and not let grace be interfered with that anybody who teaches otherwise, he's basically saying, may they be sent to hell for this. I mean, that might be his passion come out, but this is the anointed word of God. God, it, it needs to tell us, this is important, guys. This is serious. So, why is he so vehement about it? Well, he says that if you abandon or re, you're, if you do this, you're relinquishing the greatest part of the gift God has, the best part of the, of the good news. You're, you're willingly surrendering this freedom that you've got, and you're re-entering a prison of obligation. You're back into having to earn it yourself. You're, you're back to having to not sure where you stand. It ruins the whole loaf, he had said. It, it permeates the whole thing. It will spoil. It, it's not the gospel. And so he says, so I'm calling you fight it resist it. Don't give it no quarter. I, I, can I tell you one of my uh, when I think about my, my own spiritual development I have, I, I have lots of regrets but there's, a, there's one regret that really jumped out at me this week. I, I was, this was in the 70s when I got started preaching and I had hair man I had hair in the 70s. I, I was, it, was, it was a good look. <laughs> I, I had some hair. But in the circles I was in, long hair was considered an act of rebellion. And so I was told, in the circles I was at, and I was getting invited, I was a young man, I was getting invited to preach lots of places, said, "Oh, we can't have you preach unless you cut your hair. I said, what? And they said, no, it's, they had the reasons for it, right? The associations and the culture, they weren't looking at me, they were just looking at the thing. And you know what I did? I cut my hair. You know what, when I read Paul's words to Galatians here, I go, I wish I hadn't done that. Because when I did, I, I, I became a slave to external standards of my acceptance and my provision and my platform. And, and I will tell you, this is just an honest part of my life. I have wrestled through a lot of my history, I've, I've wrestled with truly understanding that I, when I stand in front of God Most High, does he really fully, truly accept me or is he a little bit disappointed? Is, do, I, do I really measure up? And I look back at the things that contributed to that and that was one of them. You've got to comply with some standards or you're not so sure where you stand. We're not sure you're worth doing, serving or being heard, or having any kind of platform. And I think that's part of the reason why Paul says, listen everybody, you have to ruthlessly eliminate this factor from your circles, from your own thinking. You need to kick it out of there. And so he says it to an entire church. Look at, look at chapter six, verses 12 to 16. Yeah, let's look there. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly Are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is being a new creature, a new creation. That's what counts. And so we have some modern equivalents. Hang on tight here. When we gather in the name of Jesus, we have to, it's good to ask ourselves a question. Who's invited here and what do they hear and are, how do they know if they're welcome? Can I tell you, Can I just say this? The longer I've been in ministry, the more I have been, the more I've drawn this conclusion that it's such a rare thing that if you can find somebody who a, 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 a pastor, a Christian leader, who for the long term is faithful to his wife, he's faithful to the gospel, and he's faithful to his church for a long period of time, that guy's worth your esteem. And can I just say, I'm not just saying, Brad, thank you. For 25 years, you, you did that here. Thank you. We, we would come and visit our friends, as Zimmerman's on vacation, at times we sat, we met you then. And you know what? Consistently, you heard that. Faithful to the gospel. Faithful to his wife. Faithful to his church. For a quarter century. That's rare. Deserves to be celebrated. This can creep in anywhere though. And so, what are the modern equivalents of circumcision? Do we say to people, yeah, you're going to get looked at a little funny if you smoke outside this building. yeah, you know, if you walk in and your styles don't, aren't kind of what we're used to around here, uh, that might make you, we might ask you to be more comfortable sitting somewhere else or coming back another time. It, there's certain language that people use, and if you use that language around here, you go, oh, we're gonna, we're, I mean, we're going to try not to say it, but you're going to see us, uh, the look in our eyes. Is it okay for somebody to be divorced and show up? is it okay for somebody to be attracted to the same sex and show up here is it okay for somebody to vote differently than all the literature said that we're all supposed to vote and post that they did be proud that they did and be a Jesus person is it okay for somebody to have body markings and piercings don't look or make you comfortable or look, or they, they trouble you? Is that okay? Is it, is it okay for somebody to, to not be a former addict but to be a present addict and to say, I str- I struggle. Is that okay? Is, the, is, our, is our setting truly sinners welcome? What do we put in our membership covenants? Beyond, I follow Jesus. Can I just throw this out there for for not just this setting, for our greater settings? Don't create a new circumcision for people to come and be fully, completely accepted into a family where they can struggle with those things, where if they get farther in, they may be challenged about them. They may be invited out of love to look and see how they can be transformed, but where it's not a requirement before they show up. Some of those things are stated formally in places. Sometimes they're probably the more severe of them are never stated. They're just kind of implied. You just see it in the looks of faces. You see who gets invited or where they, who hangs out with who or how long they'll talk with you. Now, Paul does not just leave us with a challenge about that. He presents an alternative to it. In Galatians, go back to chapter 5, and you'll see in verses 13 and 14. You brothers were called to be free, don't you, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature rather serve one another in love the entire law is summed up in a single command love your neighbor as yourself if you keep on biting and devouring each other watch out you'll be destroyed by each other he's going to invite them to an alternative a replacement and and that replacement is look instead of these these measures you've put out or these means by which you get godly i want to suggest something live free well i go okay i don't know what that means Right? But what does that mean to live free? He's gonna, the, the scripture gives us ways of what he, he talks about there. He's, impl- he's implied several of them already, but he talks about shifting the center of our focus for how we grow and how we have health spiritual, how we get closer to God, how we see good things come out of our lives. And, and I'm going to give you these three words, and these are not new to me, but this may be a way we can look at it. And they're the words: the head, the hands and the heart. And Paul's going to say, the Bible's going to call on us to do this. He says, shift to shift what you really make the primary focus. He's not going to say not all of them are important. They're all important. But he says, which is the one that we're using, the starting point from which they all start? How do you live free? And here's what I, I believe he's going to suggest to us. There are those who start with the head in order to get closer to God or to, to grow in their faith and they focus on the head. There are those who focus on the hands and then the, the focus is going to be on the heart. And that's where we're going to land. He, when he says that what he does, there are those who, who will focus on the head and by the head, we're, we mean those you increase intellectual knowledge. You learn about God. This includes learning his word, which I'm not telling you you shouldn't study but understand that he says that don't, if you focus first on the head and you think increasing intellectual knowledge about God is going to be the primary means by which you become more like Jesus, that needs to shift. You know what happens when we do that? Here's what happens, 1 Corinthians 8 tells us. We know that all possess knowledge, but here's what knowledge does. Knowledge puffs people up. Love, which is gonna be from a different place, builds people up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. He hasn't learned what he needs to learn. This is not, I, can I say the disclaimer? This is not saying that the word of God and the knowledge of God is not important. It is, but, but understand the order. Understand its purpose. Understand where, where it starts. Can I tell you that some of the most arrogant Christians I know are, the ones, are some of the ones who know the Bible best? Don't start with the head and think that that's what's going to get me. And then the, other, the second one is the hands, which is behavioral or external activity. Circumcision would be that. It's a physical act that you go through, and you go through this act in order to show that you're in, in order to show that you, you really are serious about this. The Bible is going to call that, Galatians is going to call that human effort. Look at Galatians 3, verses 2 and 3. Well, let's start with verse 1. You foolish Galatian, who's bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So I want to learn one thing from you. So did you receive the Spirit who changed you? The one who gave you, who, who washed you clean? Did you receive that, the Spirit by obeying the law? In other words, by performing, complying with rules? Or by believing what you heard? And he says, are you so foolish after, after beginning with the spirit? Are you, now are you trying to attain your goal by, here, there's a word, human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing. God doesn't give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law. Does he? Or, or is it because of what you believe? The work of the hands is important, God's going to call us to work with our hands. But if we think, okay, let me get the activities, get, me get compliance right, and that's going to make me stronger, that's going to make me better. You know, you know what the strongest words Jesus said against anybody were? It was people who believed that. Matthew 23, the Pharisees, who were all about making sure you're in line, making sure you show up and you do the right things and you fast when you're supposed to fast and you pray when you're supposed to pray and you go and serve where you're supposed to serve and you do it all, and he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. See what you're doing? Work of your hands. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness, which are internals, by the way. You should have practiced the latter, okay? He's not saying the work of the hands is not important, without neglecting the former, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside... They're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside. See what he's saying? See the order? First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. I want to pay attention when Jesus gets angry at somebody. And who he gets angry at are not the sinners, like who are just outwardly. He's, he's getting the, the people who are convinced that the work of their hands is producing righteousness for them. And instead, the third of those H words is what Paul would steer toward, and we say, the starting place is something very, very, you carried it in with you today, but it's not as tangible, and that's why we don't gravitate toward it. It's it's not as easy to study. He calls it your heart. It's the core person of you. It's the will center of your life. It's what the identity of who you are. It's the conscious internal part of you. The, your soul. You have it. It's breath, been breathed to life because of the at the cross Jesus paid for the sin, and then he, when you just present it, he, he ignited it to life. You carry that heart around with you, and he says, now that's what we're gonna focus on. You focus on the heart. And what you do with it is, it's is a conscious, relational th- part of you, and when you bring it into direct contact with God's Spirit, who has become part of you, That direct contact is kind of like a radiation treatment for a disease. Just by presenting it into the the course of the radiation treatment has an effect on it. You don't produce the effect. You become a recipient of the effect. But it is how the spiritual effect happens, including your salvation. Again, chapter 3, verse 2. I want to learn this. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing and by believing, it's like bringing your empty, confessed heart into the presence of God and just being a recipient of his act on it. Verse 5 says Does God give you his spirit and work miracles because you observe the law or because you, something happens internally to you? You believe. There's this direct contact. I don't I don't know if this is true but it is very very possible that's a whole lot of people in the room who our idea your idea is just the default idea it's not your it, it's you didn't choose it it's just the, maybe you were so maybe you were taught it the default idea you've lived with is in order to be c- close to god in order to 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 grow in my relation with god i need to i need to get the discipline's right, and I need to get my house in order, and I need to function. I need, I, I need to do some actions. Those are all important things to do, but but understand, it says that's not where it starts. That's not what produces it. What produce, So how? So how does this happen? Jesus, this is what Jesus talked about in John fifteen, when he says, "Well, here, look, I got it for you." John fifteen, remain in me, and I remain as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain, and that—that's gets translated a lot of ways. Abide is the other word gets used. Connect. It's a direct open flow of one uh, recipient from a source. It, it, unless it has to remain open, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit. Well, that's what we want to do, right? We want to grow in righteousness. You won't bear fruit unless you remain, he says, in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I, him, he will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. So this word abide is to bring your conscious core self into direct connection with the spirit of God. You go, what, how does that happen? You intentionally choose to bring your heart in front of God. You go, yeah, okay, I get it. We worship right that's yeah maybe and what about the other six days 23 and a half hours I, I, I'm gonna confess to you I can get into the rhythm really easily we do a whole lot of stuff for Jesus and I don't bring my heart to him I feel good about what I've done for him I'm off running doing stuff for him but I think where's my heart with him So so this this process of of focusing on the heart first instead of the head or the hands is where something happens. Why I don't like it is because I don't control it happening. It happens to me. It's a radiation that happens upon me. I say So I just consciously connect with God. But you know, here's the beauty of this thing. You can sit right where you are, right now at this moment. Some of you are doing it. And some of you haven't done it at all and don't know what I'm talking about where you, you can consciously connect with the Spirit of God right now. You can present yourself and say, here I am. I can't see you. Don't necessarily hear an audible voice. But I'm aware you're here, and I'm bringing my, my, my core self to you. I'm presenting who I really am to you. That's kind of frightening to do. That's why a lot of us don't do it. And he says, I accept it. I'll take it right where it is. You don't have to do anything else. Just bring that. Yeah, but it's ugly and it's dirty and it's diseased and, and I've, I've soiled it just recently, even today. He goes, just bring it. Abide in me, connect with me by my spirit who I've provided to you. And then he talks about how, what form to bring it in. This, the Psalms talked about this in Psalm 51, one of my favorite passages. Notice the difference here. This is after David's sin with Bathsheba. This is when he's confessing his sin and he's wanting to reconnect with God and he's gonna be forgiven. And he says... You do not delight in sacrifice. Stop there. See what he says? You do not delight in sacrifice. It's the external act of serving God, sacrificing for God. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifice is what God's looking for. See what it is? It's a broken spirit, a broken, contrite heart, God, that you won't despise. It's humbled. It's surrendered. And it's inviting him. This is Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way of of, uh, everlasting. Do you see the difference between these three? Paul says this is the gospel that you are given full, complete acceptance. And the way you grow in it is you start with your heart, don't add other hoops to jump through. And then he adds that you've got this prompter within you, the Holy Spirit who's right there with you. Look at chapter 5 again, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You want to stop sinning? You want to get better at not sinning? Live by the Spirit. That phrase doesn't mean it it means to have this connection, ongoing connection, where He's prompting in your life, you're you're presenting yourself to Him, and then as He prompts, you follow what, what He prompts you toward. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Look at verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. You, pre- you connect with God and he's going to prompt you. See, here's the cool part about this. When you do that, God will start prompting. You. And you know what? Your appetite for God's word will grow. Because as you connect with him, he'll say, oh, I got some really good things I want you to le- learn. Oh, I got a better way. You go, what is it? What is it? I need to find out what it is. I'm driven, not out of compulsion, not out of legal requirement. I'm driven because I, I know him and I love him. And I, I want to find out more. How do you tell me this? The work of the hands will follow. The work of the uh, head will follow. You'll be more prompted to do stuff for him. And that then becomes, that produces a result. One result it, it produces is this freedom from compulsion. Not a focus on rules, not a worrying about how you measure up. There's a real freedom. And do you see what else it does? You see the part I skipped? The part that we quote all the time. It's the fruit of the spirit. Verse 22. In contrast with the works of the sinful nature, which he mentions before, he says the fruit of the Spirit. Here's what's going to come out of you. Things like love, joy, and peace. I like these. Do you like these? Patience. Ooh, that'd be a good one. Kindness. Goodness is going to come out of me. Faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control, I like all those. You know what often happens, not to pick on anybody, I think I've done it myself, we do series on the fruits of the Spirit and then we'll pick one and we'll go, now here's how to work on that one. Here's how to get that one better. Are we not reading what he says? That That's making it the work of the hands again or the work of the head again. No, he says, let, let the spirit work on you. The radiation treatment hit your heart, and then this will be the fruit of that. It'll be the byproduct of that. It'll grow naturally out of that. You'll go, wow, that didn't affect me like it used to. How would that happen? Wow, I feel prompted to be kind. What in, your, your, your spouse are going to go, what's up with you? <laughs> it comes as a result of that, and there's this life quality that comes. It naturally produces that. See, I, I think we, when we're living in community with each other, we need to ask ourselves this question and then answer it. How is your heart right now? Put the focus on that. You know what happens a lot? Times this I'm sure it's happened to you, it's happened to me. How's your heart right now? Well, you know, I've been, I've been working on doing a quiet time. I'm, well, I've been, you know, serving. Well, I've been getting more regular. You know, what have I just done? I just moved it to the work of the hands. Well, I've been studying this. Well, here, you know, we had a good Bible study. I learned this stuff. That's great. All that's great. But that's not the answer to the question. When we ask ourselves, how's your heart right now? The answer to that question is, depends on, well, where have I brought it in direct contact with God's spirit lately. Is that happening? Is it? What has happened as a result of that? What's the state of my heart right now? We used to tell our small group leaders, in every group of you together, it, that's, that's the best question you can ask. What's the condition of your soul right now? Right now. Answer it. And then look at how, what he says in verses 8 and 9 of the last chapter. Um, Galatians eight, 6, 8 and 9. The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the Spirit, see the, you see the Spirit there? From the Spirit will reap eternal life. That does not just mean, that does not just mean he gets to go to heaven. There's a qualitative part to that. There's a life that's an eternal life that you get to experience when that becomes part of your life. So I'll ask you this question right now. Right now, how's your soul? And here's an open invitation that's given you freely. You don't have to jump through any hoops. you don't have to use any special language. You don't have to get your house in order to do this. You can bring your soul into direct contact with God's spirit, who will give you every bit as much a dose of His presence as anybody else around you right now. And watch what happens. When that becomes part of your life, pray with me. Thank you, God, for this church. Thank you for a place that has held up the cross of Jesus for a long time, for Brad and Margie and those before and after them who are doing that. Thank you for a place that has said, This is free. Lord, would you keep this group free? Would you allow them to revel in that freedom, even enjoy the scandal it produces, and then allow that freedom to become the core of their heart connecting with you on an ongoing basis, out of which then you will have people learn more of your word and become more obedient and see addictions conquered and see relationships mended and see activities happen and more people reach. Let that freedom be what permeates this place and our individual lives too. God, right now we have an opportunity to respond to you. Um, and as we even sing, help us so that it doesn't become an act of our hands, it becomes an act of our hearts. It becomes something that happens where our hearts, maybe for the first time, somebody right here will just open up their soul to you and say, here I am. In, in worship, they'll present it to you and say, here I am, I'm just gonna stand here and let you, your presence and your spirit do what you want. Make that true in a regular practice, but let it start now. Pray through your son.